We're going to be in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings, if you'll turn over there with us, 1 Kings, in chapter number 3. While you're turning there, I want to thank you for all you've, all your kindness this week, and uh, you've been so gracious to us, and we've had a wonderful time to be here in the services, and I appreciate my family being able to be with me all week this week, and um, I appreciate your pastor and his dear wife, and Little LB, we've been enjoying fellowship with them, and then all the kind things that, uh, what's that now? Yeah, papaw practice, and uh, so I wore my papaw hat somewhere, it's over there somewhere. If you didn't know, I'm going to be a papaw June the 12th, the Lord willing. Of course, we believe life begins at conception, so technically I'm already a papaw, amen. So I've been practicing a little bit, and uh, but anyway, we have enjoyed ourselves, and we appreciate all your kindness this week. Thank you so much. Thank you for your generosity, for your giving, and uh, for your faithfulness this week. I want us to read a little bit in 1 Kings chapter 3. This this uh, account that I'm about to read, we're going to start in verse 16 concerning Solomon, concerns a um, an account from the life of Solomon that probably all of us at one time or another have heard of. And, uh, but I want us to look at it maybe from a little different angle tonight and find a truth that I hope will help us. If you'll stand with me, we'll start reading in verse number 16, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse number 16. Now, just before we read, Solomon has been made king, and uh, the Lord has said to him, Ask what you will, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon could have asked for riches, and he could have asked for the lives of his enemies, But Solomon asked for wisdom. He said, I am but a child. I know not how to go out or come in before this great congregation. And so God gave him wisdom. He gave him the other things he did not ask for, but he gave him wisdom. And really what we're about to read, beginning in verse 16, is is an illustration that God gives us of the wisdom that this man Solomon had. But we'll read it starting in verse 16, 1 Kings chapter 3. There, then came there two women that were harlots unto the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, O my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house, and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after that I was delivered that this woman was delivered also, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night, because she overlaid it. And she arose at midnight, and took my son from beside me, while thine handmaid slept, and laid it in her bosom, and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this said, No, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. Thus they spake before the king. Then said the king, The one saith, This is my son that liveth, and thy son is the dead. And the other say, Nay, but thy son is the dead, and my son is the living. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one, and half to the other. Then spake the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. And she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, 
Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. Let's pray a moment. Father, we love you. We ask you to help us tonight in the preaching of the Word of God. I pray that you'll speak to hearts and change lives and get glory unto yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. I first became interested in this passage because it is a midnight scene. And I was studying about midnight scenes in the Bible. And in this particular passage, though though the Bible is teaching us about the wisdom of Solomon, there is another lesson here that I want us to get a hold of tonight. And it is a lesson about love. And I want to preach to you for a little while tonight about purity and pretense. Or we might call it pure love and pretended love. Pure love and pretended love. We hear a lot of things about love in the world in which we live today. But a lot of the love that we hear about is not real love. It is not the kind of love the Bible speaks about. It is not pure love. It is simply a pretense for love. But in this passage, we have a lesson about love. Now, the Bible said that God is a spirit. The Bible said that God is light. The Bible also said that God is Love. The Bible said, if we know Him, we'll know how to love. He that loveth not knoweth not God. That's what the Bible says. So, we should learn about love when we read about God. Now, if God is love, you would think that the first time love is ever mentioned in the Bible, it would be God's love. But it's not. The first time love is ever mentioned in the Bible, it is parental love, family love. Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there a burnt offering unto me on the mountain, I will tell thee of. So the first time love is ever mentioned in the Bible, it is parental love, the love of a parent for a child. Now, somebody said, Preacher, why is that important? Because really, I think the way God intended it is that every child would learn about the love of God from their mama and their daddy. You know, over 223 times in the New Testament, God is called the Father. So it ought to be tonight, when I talk about God as a Father... You ought to say in your heart, well, if God loves me like my Father loved me, that's what I want. Unfortunately, not all fathers are what they're supposed to be. And sometime when you tell people that God is a Father and loves you like a Father, there'll be some who say, if God loves me like my Father loved me, I'm not interested in that kind of love. But it ought to be every mom and daddy ought to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and teach them about the love of God. So the love of a parent for a child ought to be a reflection of the love of God. And it ought to teach us something about the love of God. I find a little lesson here in 1 Kings 3 on the love of God. 
There are three things that I want to say to you about the love of God from this passage. And we'll start with the love of this woman for her child. And by the help of God, we'll end up on the love of God and the love of Christ. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage is the supremacy of love. The supremacy of love. Love is supreme. Love, somebody said, preacher, why do you make so much about love? Well... The Bible said, if ye fulfill the royal law, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. So the Bible says love is a royal law. Now, why would love be a royal law? It would be a royal law, number one, because it was given to us by royalty, by a king. It is the king of kings and lord of lords who said, love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a royal law, secondly, because if you will learn to love, it will make you royalty. If all you ever do is hate and criticize and be bitter and despise, you live a miserable and wretched life. But if you learn to love, you live like royalty. Then I think love is the royal law because it is the law that governs all other laws. Paul said this in the book of Romans, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, here's where people get off off track on love. They say, well, if you love, if I love, then what that means is I just let anything go. No, no, no. Love is the fulfilling of the law. If I love you, I won't lie to you. If I loved you, I won't covet what you have. If I love you, I won't steal from you. If I love you... I won't kill you. If I love you, I will do what all the rest of the law says in the way I treat you. It is the law that governs all other laws. It is a royal law. Now, I want you to look at the supremacy of this woman's love. The first thing I want you to notice about it is this. Love covered her sin. Now, when I read this passage, and I get down to the end of the passage... I'm looking at this and I'm thinking of a mother and a child. Is that what you're thinking of? A mama who loves her little baby. But did you remember how the chapter or how the passage began? The first verse says, Then came there two women that were harlots. You know what a harlot is. I don't have to go into that. An immoral woman who sells herself. And so, when we start the passage, we have a harlot. But when we get to the end of the passage, all we can think of is a mom and a child. You want to know why? Her love has drawn our attention away from her sin. And all we can think about is that motherly love that she has for that child. Isn't that what the Bible said? That love covereth all sins. Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. I'm not saying it was all right for her to be a harlot just because she loved. I'm just saying to you that her love drew our attention away from her failure and her sin, our love, drew our attention away from that. Now, I'll say some more about that in a moment. Her love covered her sin. Secondly, her love convinced her judge. Now, she has, she is standing before Solomon. I don't imagine that uh, one night the baby has died and the switch has been made and the next day she is standing before Solomon. It has taken her a little while to get there. And when she gets there, she gives her testimony to Solomon and it does not move him. She tells the story. We read it. 
She said, I was delivered of a child. Three days later, this woman was delivered of a child. Her child died. She switched babies. She tells her story, but it does not convince Solomon. What does convince him? Her love convinces him. The Bible said her bowels yearned upon her son. When he looked at her and saw how much she loved that boy, he was convinced that she was the mother. So her love has covered her sin, her love has convinced her judge, and her love has conquered her foe. She could not win the victory over this other woman. She couldn't get things straightened out until her love showed that she was the mother. You know, the Bible said this. The Bible said over in Matthew chapter 5, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. I remember Brother Scott Pauley telling about flying on an airplane and there was an Arab gentleman sitting next to him and they got talking a little while and Brother Pauley witnessed to him and the man said to him, he said, you're a Christian. He said, I'm a Muslim. He said, uh, uh, the difference that I have discovered between Christianity and Islam is that Islam, Muslims hate their enemies and kill them and Christians love their enemies. And he said to Brother Pauley, he said, I think maybe you're right. They had to land the plane and were waiting at a layover in the airport. They spent a little time together. Brother Paulie was able to lead that Muslim man to Christ because of the love of Christians. Are you listening now? You see, love conquers the foe. I remember some years ago I was preaching down in Georgia and I had preached Sunday morning and Sunday, a Sunday school Sunday morning and Sunday night. I'd traveled all the day on Saturday to get there and Sunday night after service, I'm just telling you, I was worn out. And sometimes when I preach, I know you can't imagine this, but sometimes when I preach, people don't agree with what I have to say. And there was, and sometimes they'll come and tell me about it when I get done. And so I came down out of the pulpit and a man walked up to me and I had said something about some false doctrine and a false religion. And the man walked up to me and he said, hey, he said, I want a word with you about what you said tonight. I said, well, I'm going to tell you the truth, sir. I drove all day Saturday to get here. I preached Sunday school. I preached a morning service. I preached the evening service and I'm worn out. And I said, how about if we talk about it tomorrow? I was tired, and be honest with you, I was afraid I'd get in an argument, get in the flesh, and say something I'd regret later. And, and the other thing I thought was, he probably won't be back tomorrow anyway, so I'll get out of this. He said, all right. So Monday night, I walked in the service. Guess who was the first person I saw? That fella. He come walking up. He said, hey, I want a word with you about what you said last night. So I braced myself for the attack. I said, okay. He said, you were exactly right. I said, I was. I knew I was, but I was shocked that he thought I was. And then he told me this story. He'd been raised in the Catholic Church. And he and his wife got a divorce. Now, I don't know if it's always been this way or even if it's still this way. But this is what he told me. He said, the priest told me that because I got a divorce and it was not sanctioned by the church, that I was lost and I was going to hell and under a curse. And God would never save me. So he said, I spent my life thinking I was cursed by God. He said, I'd listen to the radio. I'd turn on the radio and there'd be a preacher preaching. And he said, I'd turn it off and say to myself, ain't no sense of me listening to that. I'm cursed. God hates me and I'm going to hell. 
He said, one Thursday night, I was sitting in my, in my den, and there was a knock on the doors about ten after seven on a Thursday night. He said, my wife answered the door, and there was a preacher there from the church down the road. And he asked if he could come in. And he said, my wife hollered to me. I was, she called to me. I was in the den. She said, honey, the preacher's here. He'd like to come in and talk to you. And he said, I yelled back at her and said, tell him to go away. God hates me. I'm lost. I'm cursed. I can't get saved. Tell him to go away and leave us alone. So she very kindly told the preacher, I, I'm sorry, but you can't come in. Next Thursday night, 10 after 7, it's a knock on the door, and here's the preacher. Honey, it's the preacher! Tell him to go away! I'm lost! God hates me! I'm cursed! Tell him to go away! So she told him, next Thursday night, 10 after 7. He said it got to be on Thursday night if it was quarter after 7 and the preacher hadn't come yet. We thought he might have had an accident or got lost somewhere. Finally, one Thursday night, she knocked, he knocked on the door and she said, Preacher, honey, it's the man of God! And he said, I thought the man of God, the preacher, this is God's man. And he loves me enough to keep coming back here month after month after month when I keep sending him away. And if he loves me and he represents God, maybe God still loves me. And he said, I invited him in and the preacher led me to Christ. You know what love does? It conquers enemies. So you have the supremacy of her love. There's a second thing I want you to notice, and that is the selflessness of her love. That is the nature of love. It is selfless. It loves whether love is returned or not. Somebody said, well, I was in love, but they stopped loving me. No, you were never in love. Are you listening now? Love does not give up just because it's not love. Amen. Love is selfless. Love does not think of itself. Love thinks of the object of its affection. Love is selfless. I was pastoring this little church, and this couple came. They wanted to get married. They said, now, preacher, can you do marriage counseling? Well, I'd never been to Bible college. I'd never had any study. I didn't have the slightest idea how to go about that. And so I started looking. I got on the Internet, and I found a bookstore, and I found this, I think it was 12 or 14 lesson marriage counseling course. It had a textbook, and it had uh, workbooks for the bride and the groom-to-be. And I looked, and I said, that's the ticket. And I ordered that thing, and it came in the mail. When it came in the mail, I spread all that stuff out all over my desk. I looked, I thought, this is going to be the happiest married couple that's ever been married. I'm telling you, this is... And I got looking, I thought, man, this is the ticket right here. Until I started reading. And the first thing I read was something called the Needs Pyramid. I'd never heard of that. Now, I've heard of the Food Pyramid. You ever heard of the Food Pyramid? If I understand the Food Pyramid correctly, down at the bottom, the wide part, the stuff you're supposed to eat, a lot of is Brussels sprouts and cauliflower and stuff like that. And up in the pointy part, the stuff you're not supposed to eat is nanner pudding and hot fudge sundaes and, and uh, chocolate chip cookies, all that stuff. I'd heard of the food pyramid and I wasn't impressed with it. Well, after I got looking at the needs pyramid, I wasn't impressed with it either. Because it said on the lady's side, the bride-to-be, it said, and this is not word for word, but this was the gist of it, she cannot meet his needs until her needs are met. 
So I looked at his workbook, the groom, and it said he could not meet her needs until his needs were met. So I'm not real smart, but I figured out if they went into the marriage and her idea was, I'm first and I have to have my needs met before I can meet his. And he goes into the marriage and says, I'm first and I can't meet her needs until mine are met. It don't take a rocket scientist to figure out ain't nobody's needs going to get met in that deal. It's going to be a mess. You say, what'd you do? I threw it in the garbage. We went back to the Bible. But you see, that's not love. Love is not, you take care of me and then I'll take care of you. Love is selfless in its nature. I look at this woman and I think about, I think about how real love is faithful toward the object of its affection. This woman woke up, her son had been stolen. I imagine a cry went up in the house. I imagine she told the neighbors. I imagine they called the sheriff, the soldiers, whoever. And she probably went to the magistrate, and then she went to the circuit court, and then she went to the regional court, and then she went to this court, and she's gone all the way to the court of Solomon. You know, it's a dangerous thing for a harlot to go into the camp, uh, the courtroom of the king of Israel. But she's not thinking of herself. She's thinking of that little boy. Real love is faithful to the object of its affection. And then real love has feeling for the object of its affection. If you love somebody, there'll be some feeling in it. Oh, I know some people say, well, preacher, I'm just not emotional. I'm just not the emotional type. I hear ladies say that to me. They say, Preacher, I'm just not emotional. I just don't get emotional about things. And I've often wondered what it would be like if you went to the hairdresser and she's working on your hair and all of a sudden she went, Whoops. I didn't mean to do that. I'm so sorry. We have some nice wigs in the back at a reasonable price. Man, you'd get emotional about that. You'd be, you'd be saying, I want a mirror. What did you do? What's missing? You'd get emotional about that. If some of you fellas got up tonight and got out in your car and headed out and found out your wallet was missing, I think you'd probably get emotional. I'd like to sit next to some of you at a ball game. See what you love and get emotional about. Your emotion may not be the same as mine. You may not get loud. You may get quiet. There may just be tears. But if you love something, there'll be some emotion somewhere. See, when the Bible said her bowels yearned upon her son, that that little term or that little phrase, about to have the bowels yearn, is in the New Testament, it's used like this. Jesus looked upon the crowd and he was moved with compassion. Looked on the multitude, moved with compassion, seeing them as sheep having no shepherd. It means to have the inward parts to move and to be affected by love and because you care about something. And so here is a woman, uh, she is faithful toward the object of of her affection and she feels toward it. And then here's the third thing. She is willing to forfeit for the object of her affection. She has taken this all the way to the highest court. She refuses to give this boy up. And finally Solomon says, all right, bring me a sword. 
they take that little boy and I can see one soldier holding his legs and one soldier holding his arms and they've got him out on the table and Solomon's standing with a sword over that boy and he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut him in half and we're going to have to we're going to give one to the one and one half to the other. That's what we're going to do. And that woman who loved that boy said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. She said, let her have him. You know what she's saying? She's saying, I love him so much. I love him so much that I'd rather spend the rest of my life knowing the pain of being away from him than to see a scratch get on him than to see him be hurt. I would rather suffer myself than to have him suffer at all. That is what love does. Love forfeits for the object of its affection. Now you say, preacher, that's all interesting about love. Well, maybe it is. But let me tell you where I'm going with it. I not only see the supremacy of love in this passage and the selflessness of love, but I see a picture of the Savior's love in this passage. Dr. Harold Seitler taught me years ago when he was preaching, when you read your Bible, look for Jesus because you'll find Him everywhere. I found a little glimpse of His love right here in this chapter. So let me say to you some things about the love of Christ. Number one, the supremacy of His love. Do you know what the love of Christ has done? It has covered my sin. See, Jesus loved me enough to go to the cross and to die and shed His blood. And that blood has washed away my sin. I I like what the Old Testament said, that He takes the sin and puts it as far as the east is from the west and buries it in the deepest of the sea and, and then puts it behind His back. And I like all that, but that is Old Testament. My sin is not in the depths of the sea. My sin is not behind His back. My sin is not as far as the east is from the west. My sin is is clean, gone, washed away in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of God that was in Him, shed upon the cross of Calvary, has cleansed me. The devil can look in the depths of the sea if he wants to. He can look as far as the east and the west if he wants to. He can even look behind the back of God if he wants to, but he won't find my sin. It's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's gone. Not only has His love covered my sin, but His love has convinced my judge. The love of Christ that allowed Him to go to Calvary, that sent Him there, He died of love. That love has satisfied the God of heaven who had, who was an, I was at enmity with Him because of my sin. I was an enemy of God just like you were when we were lost and we were under the judgment of God. But now that judgment of God is satisfied having made peace through the blood of His cross. Not only is His blood covered my sin and convinced my judge, but His love has conquered my foe. The devil no longer has free course in my life. The devil no longer. The Bible said in John chapter 8, Jesus talking to religious people who were not saved. He said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. For 23 years of my life, I thought I was doing what I wanted to do, but I was doing what my father the devil wanted me to do. But when I got born again, I was freed from my great enemy. And now I'm a child of God. 
You know what I did? I traded in the father of lies and got the father of mercies. I got a pretty good deal. Amen. The supremacy of the Savior's love and then the selflessness of the Savior's love. He is absolutely selfless when it comes to loving us. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, He is faithful to us. The Bible said in Hebrews, I mentioned it this morning in our senior citizens' meal, which I greatly enjoyed that time we had this morning. That was wonderful. But I thought about this. The Bible said, the Hebrew writer said, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest. And he is faithful. He never let me down one time. He's never given up on me. He holds me in the palm of His hand. No man is able to pluck. That's what the Bible said in John. Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. My Father which gave me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of My Father's hand. One old preacher said, he said, Jesus won't pluck you out, and God won't pluck you out, and ain't nobody else doing any plucking anyway, so you're safe in the hand of God if you're saved. And I believe that's true. He's faithful. And then He feels for us. The Hebrew writer said this, looking unto Jesus. Or he said, wherefore seeing we have... You know, I'm losing that verse, but let me quote you this one. The Bible said, said that He is touched with the feelings. Let me read it to you. For, you know, sometimes my brain goes dead, but I think my eyes are still working. In Hebrews chapter 4, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we are, and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly on the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I was reading one day, and this fellow said that word touched. He said... The Hebrew behind that word has this picture with it. If you had two harps and you put them in one room, he said if they are in perfect tune with each other, then when you pluck the string on this harp, the string on this harp will vibrate in response even though nobody plucked it. He said that's what the meaning behind that word touched He said, God's heart is so in tune with my heart that when my heart strings are plucked, the heart strings of God are also plucked. You say, does God really care about us like that? Well, let me read you a little passage of Scripture. I may have mentioned it the other night. In Exodus chapter number 3, when God is talking to Moses, listen to what He says. He says to Moses, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them. God said He knows. He is a faithful and a merciful high priest. He feels for us. You know, this, is, this business of being saved is not just some mechanical formula. It's not just I do this and he does that. Did you ever read the parable of the prodigal son? And that son, the Bible said he came to himself. 
he, he's down in the hog pen. He said, how many, how many uh, servants in my father's house have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned before heaven, I sinned against, before heaven and against thee, and I am no, wor- am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. So he got up and he headed for home. And the Bible said when he was great, yet a great way off, his father saw him, and his father did not fold his arms and say, Well, you've messed up, boy. You've been away. Let's see if you got what it takes to get right with me. No. You remember what it said? It said when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. That word kiss. Now, I'm not a Greek student, uh, but that word kiss, they tell me, is in the perfect tense, which means it continues and continues. It's not this. It's this. And the Bible said he fell on his neck and kissed him. And he said, and the boy looked at him and said, Father, said, I've sinned against heaven before thee, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. But before he could get the rest of that out, the Bible said, but the father said, bring forth the robe, the best robe, and put on him. And put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and kill the fatted calf. For this my son was dead and is alive again. I'm trying to tell you that God feels something for you. He loves you. And he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And then, I don't even need to preach this, I don't think. But not only is he faithful to us and he feels for us, but he has been willing and is willing to forfeit for you and I. He did not die on the cross because he was a sinner. He died on the cross because I was a sinner. Paul put it this way, he, talking about God, hath made him Jesus. He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I was the sinner. He was the holy one. I was guilty, and he was innocent. But he took my place on the cross of Calvary and took my judgment and forfeited so that I could be saved. Now, I have one more thought I want to give you before I'm done. We've looked at the supremacy of the Savior's love and the selflessness of the Savior's love. But I want to mention to you before we go the satisfaction of the Savior's love. Now, a love, a love that is willing to do all the things that this woman did for this boy, And a love that is willing to do all the things that Christ has done for us. What would satisfy that kind of love? Or could I put it this way, what kind of return would that kind of love be satisfied with? Now, you remember I said we're looking at purity and pretense? Pure love and pretended love. There are two women here, remember? When Solomon takes the sword and is going to cut the child in half, are you listening? The woman who loved the child said, don't hurt him, let, let her take him. The woman who did not really love the child, and I don't know why she wanted the child, she had some reason, I'm sure, But she said, divide him. So I take that to mean that pretended love 
would be satisfied with half a child. But real love does not want half a child. Real love wants everything. So what do you mean, preacher? I want you to listen to me carefully. I'm not preaching right now about how a person gets saved. But I am preaching about how a person can enjoy a love relationship with Christ when they are saved. Are you listening now? I, I don't like to use this illustration, but I am going to use it because it makes the point. Sherry and I have been married. We're in our 36th year of marriage. Now, suppose tonight, after church, we're standing up here and you're standing around us. And Sherry says to me, I'm taking the van. I'm going to drop you off at the hotel and then I'm taking the van. And I say to her, where are you going? And she says, that's none of your business. And I'd say, well, what do you mean it's none of my business? We're married. I know we're married. And I love you and you love me. And we're still going to be married. But what I'm going to do right now has nothing to do with you. And I'm going to go do it. When I'm done, I'll come back. And it'll be like it was. But it's really none of your business. It's just for me. Now, if you heard her say that to me, you'd turn away shaking your head and you'd think, they don't have a very good marriage. If they're keeping things from each other, And if they're setting off a certain part of their life as though it does not belong to their mate. Isn't that what you think? What do you think God thinks? When you say to Him, All right, Lord, you get this much of me, but this over here is mine. And it's not part of our relationship. You can't have this. Just, you can have this. But I'm saving this for me. Do you call that love? Do you think that would satisfy the Savior? Here's what. A man came to Jesus and he wanted to know what the greatest commandment was. The first commandment. You remember what Jesus said? He said it a little different in a couple different places. But in one place he said it like this. It's all the same, really, the core of it. He said... The first commandment, the greatest commandment, is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy strength. Someone said, well, preacher, I I believe I'm saved, but I'm not enjoying the Christian life. Probably the reason is you're holding out on God. Some area of your life, you've said, Lord... I love you and I'm, I'm glad you love me, but there's this right here and, and, and I, just, I, just don't, I just don't want you involved in this. You may not use that kind of term. Are you listening now? But what would satisfy him is nothing less than everything. And if you want to know the joy of the love of Christ and the Christian life, you're going to have to Say yes to Him every time. You're going to have to say, Lord, everything I have is Yours. 
and I'm not holding nothing back. See, tonight, there's some folks you're holding back on God. I don't know what it is. It may be, it may be some habit. Maybe some thought. You say, does God, does he, does he require all my thoughts be right? Here's what, the, here's what Paul said in Corinthians. He said, casting down imaginations and every high thing that will exalt itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity under the obedience of Christ. Maybe it's something you look at or listen to. Maybe it's some bitterness in your heart, some hurt that you won't give up to God. You're going to hang on to it. And all it does is sap all the joy out of the love relationship that Christ wants to have with you. You say, well, preacher, how can I enjoy the love of God? Just give it all up to it. Sometimes I say surrender it. But I think it'd be better to say yield it because usually when you surrender, you have some terms. But when you yield and submit, you don't have any terms. You take whatever terms are given to you. So I'm wondering tonight, are you holding out on it? After we've looked at the great love that He has for us, how can we possibly hold out anything on someone that loves us like He loves us? He's not going to hurt you. He's not going to ruin you. He's not going to steal your joy. He's going to give you joy unspeakable and full of glory. Did you ever hear somebody look at a couple and say, they're so in love. You know the way it ought to be tonight? We ought to be so in love with Jesus that we wouldn't hold anything back from Him. And then we'd be enjoying this love relationship with Christ. Has something got between you and Him? Is there something hindering that joy? Is there something you're holding out on Him? Don't you tell Him tonight, Lord, I'm not holding this out anymore, not any longer. I want to know the depths of the love of God in my life.